Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, January 16th, 2022. The share ID numbers for Friday, January 14th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,406, that's 18406. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,407, 18407. This morning, A Vision for You presents my story. In our disease of compulsive overeating, we found a sense of complete despair, powerlessness. As real compulsive overeaters, we are bodily and mentally different from others. We have an abnormality of the body, an allergy. Once we put our trigger foods into our body, it reacts in a way that demands more of the same. And we have an abnormality of the mind, We suffer from a mental obsession so cunning and subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower can break it. We cannot solve the problem of compulsive overeating by ourselves. We come to realize that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, our effort, our determination, self-knowledge, philosophies, morality, goals, or very, very good intentions won't solve our problem of compulsive overeating. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. Our situation actually is not hopeless, however. Far from it. There is hope, but that hope lies outside ourselves. The big book teaches on page 143 that to get over drinking, or for us, of course, compulsive overeating, it will require a transformation of thought and attitude. The 12 steps represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating and bring about recovery. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific and proven method for producing this transformation. A change in the way we think, a change in the way we feel, and most importantly, a change in the way we behave. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of our lives are cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions ideas, and attitudes begin to dominate us. Joining us this morning to share his personal story of transformation is Chuck Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Georgia. Chuck is dedicated to the application of these 12 steps and to carrying this message of recovery. And it's with great appreciation I welcome Chuck to the line. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me okay? Am I clear? I hear you well. Yes, Perfect. Indeed. Well, my name is Chuck Kay. I am from Georgia right now. 
it's 37 degrees and raining, and we've all heard down here there's going to be snow, so we can't buy any bread or milk anymore at our grocery stores. And uh, nobody seems to be out as I went out to get a good cell signal this morning. But uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have been asked to share my story. Uh, when I was asked to do this, I thought it was a little bit timely because it's the beginning of the year. And as we all know, that the beginning of the year is a time that people make resolutions. And, you know, maybe some new people have come onto the line. Uh, maybe some people that have dealt with relapse have come to the line and on the line in hopes to hear a story. And I hope that something I say can inspire someone. And I'm just looking to do a good job to share my strength, hope, and experience. Uh, I am a man of 50. I am about six foot four. And at one time, I was 420 pounds. I am also a bulimic. And if I, I wasn't engaging in that activity, I very well could have been 450, 500, or even more than that. I have four children. I've been married a, a long time. I'll be 30 years in November. And all in all, I've had a really good life. And when I've talked to people in program, you know, I've heard some of the worst stories that happen to us in this world. And I am very fortunate that, that I don't have a lot of that. I don't have a lot of stories like that in my life. Um, I have my story and I've had my share of disappointments and that kind of thing. But overall, I've lived a very lucky and good life to the point that when I was asked certain questions in this program, I thought, well, I had the shame of, well, what else has God got to do for me in this life? And that was even a shameful thing to think about. You know, what? I don't have any of these major difficulties or problems, so why am I so unhappy? Why am I having to turn to food? And uh, I'll try to answer some of those questions to the best of my ability in a moment. Uh, when I first started working the steps, I was given an assignment. That assignment was a food history. And I didn't know it at the time, but the food history was designed for me to understand that I was probably someone that always had this disease. I didn't realize it at the time. At the time, I didn't even think I was allergic to sugar or flour or any other substance. I thought it was kind of foolish to even say that. And it took me trying to eliminate those before I realized the benefit of doing so. But as I wrote my history and I started thinking about things, certain things popped up into my mind that made me think that, well, maybe they do have a point about me. One of those instances when I was a, a adolescent spending the night with my friends, and they would kind of tease me the next day because if we had any pizza or any snacks or anything like that, I'd take it home. And the reason I would is because my parents didn't keep that kind of stuff in the house. They're very frugal with the way they spent money on food. And I'd go to one of my friends' house. Um, they knew me and they loved me. I could just go in and the first thing I would do is go raid their, their pantry because they had the food that I wanted. And it was kind of a joke, but there was a sense of shame that I just kind of let settle, that I didn't really speak of, that I joked about. I'm, I'm the type of person that when I'm nervous, I'll make a joke or I'll try to be a little bit of a clown to kind of 
what I'm thinking is easing other people, but actually I'm just trying to ease myself. And so I would do that. And then uh, the, 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 the problem with that was I was a competitive swimmer. And if you're a competitive swimmer, you can eat whatever you want. You have no problem keeping the weight off. And that's what I did. Well, when I got out of high school and I stopped swimming regularly and I went into college and within a few short years married my wife, I began to pick up the weight. I continued to eat all the things that I did in whatever quantities I wanted. I wasn't exercising and I started ballooning. I was 160, 180 in high school. Within two years, I was 230. And within a few short years after that, I was well over 400 pounds. I remember being on vacation, and they had like a circus scale out, and I got on it, and that was the first time the scale ever read 400-plus pounds. And I was on vacation, and I remember exactly what happened and how I felt. And I couldn't believe what was going on. But there's nothing I could do. Anything I tried didn't work. It worked for a few days, maybe a week, but not much. I never had much luck with anything more than about a week. And so another instance that I had to tell a little bit about who I was with food was um, probably about 15, 20 years ago, uh, my buddies from high school and college and I would go out on a trip somewhere. And we'd go to the steakhouse and we'd eat a big meal and we'd have three or four, seven courses and then we would leave and, you know, go have fun at whoever's house or hotel we were staying at. And on the way back, we'd stop by the, the, the liquor store. And because I was a part of the group, we'd stop by the grocery store. And I would go and pick up all my favorite snacks without regard to what it cost. Whatever I wanted, I would get. And I remember one of those times uh, the next morning, one of my buddies, and he's, he's a big guy. He comes up to me and he goes, hey, I know you bought that family pack of such and so. He says, let me have a couple of them for breakfast. And I looked at him. I said, man, I ate all those. What are you talking about? And I never forget the look he gave me. He couldn't believe that I had eaten everything that I had and then eaten those in, in, in addition. He was like, how did you eat those? I was like, what do you mean? I bought them to eat them, so I ate them. And although he was a bigger person, writing that down and thinking about that made me realize there was something a little bit different about the way I approached food. Something different in the way that I looked at food and the way that people around me looked at food. And as I began finishing that story, I thought about, uh, you know, being in college and and going to the cafeteria on the on the on the meal plan and I would take bags, I would hide them sometimes in my jacket to take them back to my room. And I would isolate. You know, I was never a popular person, but I got along with everyone. But there would be weekends at college when everybody's having fun and I'm in my room on the T V all day eating. And that's what I did. And sometimes I would go out, and when I went out with my friends, guess where we went? We went out to eat. And so not really realizing it, because I was so dishonest with myself, food was the center of my life. 
And if you wanted to see me in a foul mood, you see me hungry, irritable, restless, and discontent, as bad as anyone. And so, um, and so what, what we learn is through telling our stories is we can help people who are uncertain. We can help them identify in. And that's a part of step one, identifying with, with others and seeing that if others can, can have their problem conquered for them, well, maybe I can have the problem conquered for me too. And it makes me pliable to do what I say or, excuse me, do what I'm told. Because when I do what I want to do, there's going to be a lot of immaturity in that. There's going to be Chuck's going to do what he wants to do without regard for anyone else, without regard of anyone's feelings or the consequences or anything. And one thing I know about this disease, it, 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 it's fatal. It wants to kill me. It's going to settle for making me a miserable person. It's going to settle for ruining my marriage, ruining my, my job ruining my relationship with my children and my parents. It's okay with that. It doesn't mind doing that. But really, this disease wants to kill me. It's almost like an evil force. That's the way I look at my disease. And I'm at battle with it every single day. And the only thing I have are these steps. So going back to my food history, uh, Part of my history is, is I come from a religious background. My parents took me to church, and I married the, wife, the daughter of a Southern Baptist preacher. And so, you know, our kids were raised going to religious services, and I, I read my religious book and, and all of that. And I remember my first pops are asking me when I was talking about how strong I thought my faith in God was and how you know, how I felt like I had a personal relationship with that power of my understanding. And they looked at me and they said, well, if, if you've got such a strong relationship with God, well, why are you turning to food? And I sat there and I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, that's a really good question. Later, I had another sponsor say, you're going to have to change your conception of God. There's something about your conception of God that isn't working. And I remember where I was, and I remember how fearful I was because I thought, well, wait a minute. You're not supposed to do that. That's how you go to hell. That's what's not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to question God. But as my sponsors continued to give me permission and tell me that it was okay to change my conception of God, I understand that God was just big enough to not worry about such things, that God was willing to go through with me whatever I needed to so that I could clear that path to God. Now, I'm going to talk about God, and I'm going to use masculine pronouns. That's just because of what I'm used to. And I don't mean to disrespect anybody else's conception of God or whatever they choose to believe. I believe everyone's conception of God is perfect for them, and this is mine. But what I will say is I also know there's some of you that cringe when even the word of God is spoken. And I know why. And you have a good reason. And there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that's okay. The book teaches us that we don't even have to be to believe in the God of understanding yet. We don't have to know. Matter of fact, we don't. 
We just don't know that we don't. We just have to be willing to be open. And I have seen that through my experience. Even though I was a religious person, I was what somebody coined agnostic in belief. That meant I believed in a God, but when it came time to, to have a relationship with God, I wouldn't use God. You know, I'm one of those that would do the foxhole prayer. Oh, Lord, if you'll get me out of this mess, I'll never do that again. And sure, I've had deep re emotional experiences, no doubt. But the bad news is, if you're cringing about God, and you don't have a relationship, and you're not developing it, that's what this whole thing is about. These steps are not about abstinence. The big book says so. It's very clear. These steps are about perfecting and enlarging our spiritual life. And when we do that, our emotional and our physical recovery can begin to occur. And so if you're cringing, my prayer is that somehow you can be willing through action to allow God to connect with you however God can. Wherever you are, no matter what has happened to you, how unfair, how not unfair, that's my prayer for everyone. Because I know how hard it is. Even though I didn't have a problem with that God in the clouds or the one you see in the picture that's painted with all the people around him, even though I believed in that, I really didn't put that into practice. And I believe that's why I turned into food. But you know what? That in itself was a miracle. I am proud to be a compulsive overeater because I know and I'm living the life of recovery that is required. I remember when it was a real pain in the butt. I didn't want to go to meetings. I didn't want to do all these things I didn't want to do. I didn't want to take calls. I didn't want to have to read. Lord, when they told me that I had to journal, I would almost pitch a fit because I hate writing. But as one loving sponsor told me, I do these things until they become a part of me. And today, I can't imagine my day starting without prayer and meditation. Good morning, God. I can't, I can't go to sleep without saying, good night, God. And throughout the day, to the best of my ability, I work on the things God puts before me. And I try to put my designs, my plans on the side. So if you're struggling with that conception of God or you're struggling with relapse or being new, I know right where you've come from. I know when I've told myself, why are you even trying to do this right now? Nothing has ever worked. It's not going to work. It's going to be just like all the other things that you've tried. You're going to do it for a little bit, and then you're going to quit. So why even start? And how many times, even in program, did I do that and ate what I wanted to eat? and did what I wanted to do. But for some reason, and I'm so, so thankful for it, the one thing I didn't do was leave the program. I may not have always been honest with my sponsors, and I wasn't. I may not have done the things that I knew I should have done, but I never left. Even if that meant going to one meeting a week when I know I should go to as many as I can. 
even if that meant talking to one person a day, I never left. And it took a long time for the transformation to happen with me. But I could see growth. I could see things getting better. And I kept at it. And I think that's the one thing that I did do right. Maybe the only thing. I don't know. So a part of my story that I really like to tell is how I became a member of OA. And just like Bill's story, one of the things I really like is to see about the history and how certain things came into place so that Bill uh, could, could talk to the people he did and, you know, God worked in his life so that he could write these steps and all of this came about. I can see God in that. I have a good story where I can see God impacting me and making things happen for me. And I'm going to tell that story now. I love to tell it, so that's what I'm going to do. So about five years ago, a little over five years ago, I was 420 pounds. And one of my really good buddies from high school, uh, I found out he's getting a divorce. And of all of us, he was the most successful. He was a doctor. His wife was a doctor. No telling how successful he was. And the way, the way it went for me is I was always the most successful. I started working more for, or before anyone. I got married before anyone, had all of that. So I was always used to being the most successful. That's the only way I felt equal to my friends, if I was better than everyone else. So I found out he was getting a divorce. So I called him. Now, I wasn't calling him to be mean or ugly. That was not my intention. But I finally felt equal to him to talk to him. I was jealous. I was envious. And I couldn't talk to him. He's one of my best friends in the world. Because any comment that he said would be like rubbing in my face. I was one of those people, those insane people, who's only happy when other people are miserable and sad when other people were successful. That was me. Well, when I talked to him, he was dealing with an addiction that I didn't know that he had. And it basically cost him everything. It cost him his wife, his home, his relationship with his children. He had four children also. His job. He lost his job. And he found a program. And he was working with it. And I was talking about how I was miserable. I was having trouble bending over to tie my shoes. If I dropped my pencil on the floor, I didn't want to pick it up because I couldn't get down there very easily for fear of blowing the back end of my pants out. And he made the comment. He said, Chuck, I wish there was a program for you just like I have. He didn't know about Ovaries Anonymous. I, I'd never heard of it either. And uh, a few weeks later, a, a little time later, I was working with a another college or another high school friend that worked with my company and we were talking about my friend not in a mean way but I am a gossip that's part of what who I who I can be and, and uh what I didn't know is this friend was an alcoholic and he was in recovery and although I knew this I didn't know he was a, he was an alcoholics anonymous and he knew about Overeaters anonymous and I'll never forget sitting there talking to him and then he was acting like he wasn't paying any attention. He was, he was frantically on his phone. And what he was doing was he was looking for a meeting for me. And he goes, Chuck, 
He goes, have you ever heard Overeaters Anonymous? And I said, no. And he says, well, there is a meeting where you live tonight at 7 o'clock. You ought to go to it. And something about that just said, I'm going to do that. Let me back up a few months. Let's stop right there and back up. About two months before that, I'd went to my doctor, who I'd been to four times before, three times before, to enroll myself in the bariatric gastric sleeve surgery program. Now, I'd done it three times before, saying that I just want to do the diet that you put them on. I'm too good for the surgery. But what that was code for is I am scared to death of that two-week liquid diet that you've got to go on. If I, I can't do that, there's no way. And if I could, why do I need to have the surgery? And so I went to the doctor to Chuck. Uh, we're going to schedule an appointment. Let's get you started in it. That'll be fine. Do you know that date was the very same day that was the first day that I'd ever hear the words O-Readers Anonymous put together? So I left work, and I went to my doctor. And I remember sitting there to my doctor, looking down at the floor, because I can't hardly look at him, because he's known me so long. He's seen me balloon up since I was a kid, chastising me all the way. And he goes, Chuck, I don't know that this is going to work for you. And I looked up and I said, I don't doubt it. But if you'll tell me what else to do, I'll do it. I've tried everything you've said. It just hasn't worked. And I remember him uh, meeting with me and, and I left and he gave me these pills. And he gave me this uh, uh, another prescription and, a, and an appointment to talk to Emory for some psychotherapy or something that was required. And I left that doctor's office, and I went straight to my first OA meeting. Now, I'll never forget sitting there looking at the color of the carpet because I was ashamed to let these people see me cry. Not that I'm macho, but it's just my personality. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just that's, who, that's, just, that's just me. And for the first time in my life, I could hear people say out loud the things I was convinced I was the only one that ever thought those thoughts or had those feelings. I couldn't believe it. And what a wonderful story that is to say that had to be God interacting with my life for those things to happen the way they did. Now, I'm convinced of it. Whether anyone else is is none of my business. But I love my story. And I'm telling it in hopes that somebody can identify in, just like we identify with Bill's story. We can see that, that we have a fatal disease and how it's devastated our lives, not only our bodies, but our spiritual and our emotional being, how we interact with people, the tornado that we become. You know, nobody knows what we're going to do. You know, when you're as big a guy as I am, you can bully people pretty easy. I don't have the fear. I could right now wait till 2 o'clock in the morning. I could walk down the streets of Atlanta. I don't care where I'm at. I would have no fear. Maybe a little bit, because now I'm 50, I'm a little bit older. But let me talk to you. And I have the fear of what is this person thinking of me? 
to the point that I'm not even listening to what you say because I'm trying to get my mind geared up in turbo mode to try to sit, say something that I think will impress you or that I think will make you like me. And I'm not even giving you the basic respect of listening to you. That's who I can be. Well, what happened to me? Well, I stuck with program, and I'll talk a little bit about my food plan. So when I first came to program, I thought it was crazy to talk about. Everybody said, don't eat flour, don't eat sugar. And I thought, Lord, have mercy. I feel like I'm in church, and they're preaching at me, telling me to give them money or whatever. And about two years went by, and I lost weight. No snacking was my first food plan. And it was a miracle. When you eat, when you're 420 pounds and you're as big as I am, you eat a lot of food. And for me to just stop snacking was a miracle. And it was. And then I remember complaining to my sponsor at the time of not losing any weight. And she said to me at the time, well, you ought to give up sugar and flour. You ought to at least try it for a week. And I thought, oh, God, I can't do that. I was able to give up sugar. But what happened was, it was a Monday morning that I decided I was going to do this. And I went through the day, and, and I had a little bit of program under me, and I thought, I'm going to really work program hard today. My job allowed me to make calls and talk and do things. So I, you know, I listened to a program in the morning. I talked to about four or five people. On my break, I did some reading. I did some journaling which, if you know me, is a miracle in of itself. And I went home, and let me tell you something. I didn't have a second fight against some candy that was sitting on my kitchen table. Not one second. And I had a binge. First day. Well, the next morning I woke up, and I said, well, what am I going to do? Well, I, I did a little bit of the same thing, and I, I made an outreach call to a, to a man, and he was in vision. Uh, he went to those meetings, and he told me his story, and he, he just, the way he talked, and we were just talking about things, and something clicked, and I never had sugar since then. I was still eating other things, and I still had some movement to go in my food plan. But I wasn't eating sugar anymore. It was an absolute miracle. Then skip ahead about a year and a half with my current sponsor. And that's another little story in of itself, but I'm not going to tell that one. But uh, I was complaining once again. I wouldn't be honest with him with everything I was eating. I knew what he was eating, and I knew what he wasn't eating, and I knew he wouldn't put up with my nonsense. But I was complaining about plateauing and not losing weight. And we had been working together for about a year. He was what they call, a, what I've heard, a big book sponsor, which is something I was interested in. And out of the blue, after a year talking to this guy, he goes, I want you to send me your food every day for two weeks. And that floored me. And I knew he wouldn't put up with my nonsense. And I remember thinking, I have three choices. I can lie to him. I can tell him the truth and continue eating the way I was and probably lose him as a sponsor, which I didn't want to do. 
or I could just give it a try. I've heard all of these things I need to stay away from. OA and their pamphlet will say someone with long-term recovery uh, eliminates or greatly reduces the amount of flour, sugar, salt, and fat from their diet. And although I was terrified, I made the decision to eliminate flour, sugar, sugar substitutes, even beans, corns, potatoes, and rice. And I was terrified. I remember looking out. It was springtime. I was like, well, hell, all I can eat is grass and tree leaves. There's nothing left. When we go on vacation, it's going to be miserable. I'm going to be eating the same old nonsense. Everybody's going to be enjoying themselves. Those are the lies I told myself. I laugh about that now because now everybody wants my food. They don't want to eat the same old stuff they've been eating all these years when we go on a picnic or go to the beach. They want my food because it's good. And they don't have none of that junk in it. And I laugh about that now. When that was going on for about a week, I was terrified. The only thing I remember being more scared of was a monster in a movie when I was a kid and had to walk home in the dark in the woods. And I'm not trying to be funny with that. That's, that's literally how scared I was to give up the only thing I've ever known that brought me any sort of relief in this life. Once I made that change, once I was willing to let that stuff go, a lot of miraculous things began to occur for me in my life. They would not have occurred if I didn't have the willingness backed up by action. That was the key for me. Because I'd been willing many, many times to lose my weight and never worked, even in program. But when I was able to do that, God was able to work through and in me. And it was a real miracle. So... Um, what I want to move to is I, I remember always hearing about being a big book sponsor and all of that, and I didn't know what that was. And I heard about this meeting called Vision, and I've heard some other meeting, big book study meetings and that kind of thing. And in the program, I'd worked the 15-week uh, OA workbook. I'd worked the steps through the uh, OA 12 and 12, and those were all good things for me to do. I learned from them. But I'd always wanted to know what, what going through the big book was all about. I, and at the time, I didn't know that's what we did. I just heard the big book way. That's the way it was put. And the reason, and I'm not going to go through the whole book. I'm probably just going to go through the first maybe seven chapters and the, the, um, the doctor's opinion. But I want to go through it because if you've never done it, if you've never worked the steps just by using the big book, it brought a lot of value to my life. It brought a lot of recovery to my life. Now, I don't put one way of working the steps above another. That's an outside issue for me. I can only share my strength, hope, and experience, and that's what I want to do. So uh, when I talk to a sponsee, I generally give them a couple of days, and I tell them to, uh, you know, get a food plan, either use the dignity of choice or, or a doctor's prescribed food plan. We need a couple of days to get the food out of your system that's that's just what my sponsor told me so that's what I do and uh, we talk about the forward to the to the uh, the beginning of the book and what I tried to describe to them is 
you know, this book isn't written by just one person. It's penned by one person, Bill. But it was there was a committee or there was a group of 100 people that had to have input. And they fought. This is why we have to have traditions in our groups. They fought, argued, and everything else about what was going to go in and why and, and all of that. But I think at the end of the day, it's a good example of they did allow their, the higher power of that group to come in. And if you know a little bit of the history, when, when Bill talks about writing the first 12 steps in AA, I think it was put that the, the pen and the paper came together, and he wrote it in like, he wrote that chapter in like 15 minutes. And when I think about that, I smile because I'm like, there's God, you know, doing Chuck a favor along with millions of other people. But that's what we want to talk about. If we're going to argue with this book, we're not arguing with one person. We're arguing with a group of people that have been there, done that. And in my case, went a whole lot further down the scale than I ever did. Their bottoms were a lot lower than mine. That's another way that I'm very fortunate in this life. And then when, when we've gotten the abstinence done and we've, we've looked at the food plan and, and we've had a good idea that they are, we're not playing games with it, you know, that it's solid, and it is their, it is the sponsee's responsibility to do that, to come up with their own food plan. Um, and I'll give them some suggestions with what I know. But after that period is done, we get into the big book. And the way I like to put it is we let the big book do the heavy lifting in your recovery. I don't want them to listen too much of what I say. I'm just another broken human being living on this earth. But let God speak to that person through this book. That's what we're looking for. And if this book says do A, that's what I do. I don't add B and C to it, and I don't take one and two away from it. And I'm going to find that working the steps as directed is hard enough. And there is absolutely no need for me to get my ego in there or my designs and plans. Just do what it says. So in the doctor's opinion, when we begin working in the doctor's opinion, there's some important information in there. And that information is to talk about the allergy of the body as well as the obsession of the mind. And we can all relate to how our, body, our minds obsess over food, how we're always thinking about it. But that allergy is a little bit tricky. It's almost even odd to say. You know, I'm not allergic to nothing. I don't break out in hives when I eat certain things. But the allergic reaction that we're talking about is it's an abnormal reaction. Just like I would eat all of those, those items after we've eaten a steak dinner that I was talking about, that allergy is making me crave more of what I've always had regardless of how full I am. And if you're a bulimic, hey, having a full belly ain't a problem. You can take care of that and get more in. And then at the back of the doctor's opinion are two stories, and I like to talk about those stories because some of the greatest benefits of this program are the things that I cannot explain, but I absolutely know they've happened. I feel that they've happened. They're as true for me as there's a sky in the and the, uh, there's clouds in the sky and and ground underneath my feet. I felt them so strongly. But if you ask me to explain what happened, I, I can hardly do it. And that's what the doctor was dealing with. You know, he's talking about Hank Parker and Fitz Mayo at the back of the back of the uh, the back of that chapter, 
And he says, these guys were as hopeless condition that I've ever met. They were regarded as hopeless. And what he meant by that is he couldn't help them, and he knew it. But after they worked these steps and they applied the program of action in their life, they became a finest specimen of manhood as they could ever want to, as you'd ever want to meet. You see, he couldn't explain it any better than that. He's a doctor. He can't, he can't explain it. All he can do is the best he can, sharing his strength, hope, and experience and the observations that he's seen. And that's the way it is for me today. When we get into Bill's story, and that's what I hope to a, uh, to a degree, is we, we need to identify in. It's part of that step one question. I need to be able to see that other people think and act and feel like I do, and they've, they've applied the steps, and they've transformed. My sponsor has lost probably twice the weight I have, maybe even three times the weight that I have. But I needed to see that he did it and that it could be done. You know, the doctor's opinion also shows us the progressiveness of the disease. It never got any better for me. It only got worse. And every time I tried to arrest it, it would only come back stronger. And I can see how that happens in my life. And I can help a sponsee to, to see how that happened in their life so they have stories to tell to pass to someone else. And then the struggle with God. You know, Bill's story, Bill's struggle with God gave us, you know, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And we have permission to do that, and it's okay to do that. And, and although I was acting agnostic in, in practice, just the awareness of these things can be changed and fixed was a blessing. And in the back of this chapter, we see a life that was filled with program. And Bill and his wife just put everything into the program. They were so happy. Bill was so blessed and so thankful that he'd received this gift that he did everything. He's, he does more than I do. I, I do I do a pretty good amount of work, but he really put his whole life into it. And I always tell sponsors, that's what you need to do in your own way. And if you don't do that, you cannot expect to keep the recovery if you've been given recovery. If I'm not going to dedicate the rest of my life to this program, I cannot expect the recovery from it. And then there's a solution. We find out a little bit about who we're not. We find out about the, the heavy eater and, and, and all of these things. We find out that I'm, a, I'm the fifth type of alcoholic. You know, I'm, I'm normal in all regards. You'd look at me and you'd go, that guy ain't bulimic. That guy hasn't got a problem. And in a lot of ways, I'm doing really good, but not with food. Not with food. I am hopeless with food. And I only have one solution. You know, you'll hear it coined, there is a solution. Well, that doesn't mean we're right. That doesn't mean we're putting anything above anything else. That just means this is the only thing that ever worked for me longer than a week. More about alcoholism, we get a certain number of stories. And when I'm talking to a sponsor about these stories, I'm thinking, well, there's 100 people. Why did they use these four? Why did they use these four stories out of all the stories they probably had? 
the lesson in this chapter is about the disease being permanent, the disease is fatal, and the disease is progressive. We learn in the Jaywalker, we think it's a fantastical story, it doesn't make sense. But really, if we're honest about it, we're doing the same thing. We're killing ourselves just as this person is, just in a different way as all. We learn with Jim and Fred's story the importance of our step one commitment. You know, being able to make the step one commitment and then being able to continue the work, not just because we think it interests us, but, you know, we don't need it beyond that. We're going to rely on self-knowledge. And we see that the, 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 the disease is progressive. It gets worse over time. It doesn't ever get better. It doesn't matter if we have 30 years of not getting into it. If we get into it, we are worse than we were when we left. Then we agnostics. This is the first chapter really primarily dealing with, with another step. The first part of it, we've just been in step one, and I think that's important to bring out. We spend a lot of time in step one. Why? Because if we have any lingering notion that we got a better solution, we're going to do that. We're not going to work these steps. We've got to be convinced. We've got to be honest with ourselves, convinced that we are a compulsive overeater. And therefore, the only thing we've got is to hold on to these steps. But in we agnostics, we learn, we learn a little bit about God, or we can, that God is there to love us. God accepts us who we are. God is asking that we give that same love and compassion to those around us. And if the God idea isn't working, it's okay to fire that God and get another one. God's okay with that. And then how it works and into action, we begin actually working through the steps. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons for this. You know, we hear that step four and five clear away the wreckage of the past. Um, we hear that, you know, the steps four through nine are the beginnings of step 10, and it's all true. But I like to think about how God works through these steps. You know, what we're really doing is we're being honest about ourselves, particularly in step four. We spend all of our times in column one and column two of step four. Who they did, who they are and what they did to us. I could talk for hours and hours and hours about who they are and what they did to me. But then we learn a skill in column three and four. How does that affect me? Where am I to blame? Because that's really the only thing I can give to God. And how did my character defects come up? Because that's what I can impact. All that crap in column one, I'll never be able to. It's spinning my wheels in mud. That's all it's ever been. But in those last two columns, I really can learn some information about myself that I can change or that I can allow God to change. Step five, we learn the importance of trusting other people, getting their input. You know, my, uh, one of my sponsors, we couldn't be different. We're different genders. We're different uh, ethnical backgrounds. We're different. Uh, all of that. Everything's different. We're, we're, we're different. But we have that common problem that we have experienced. I can still call her today, and she's been there, done that, with all the crazy things that I've done. And we learn to trust people and listen. Steps step six and seven are so important 
we learn that God loves us just as we are. You know, God created us to do it. God created us with the capability to do the things that we do. But when we humbly, when we humble ourselves before God and we become ready to have our defects of character, that's an awareness that we've never had before, that all these problems are really of our own making. And then we humbly ask God to do so. God will do that because he loves us. Every step 10 that I've ever done with a person, I remind them of those promises in step 6 and 7, that God loves them as they are. And then 8 and 9, I think I got it mixed up earlier. 8 and 9 is where we clean up the wreckage of the past. I misspoke earlier. And we're going out into this world. Now, if you're anything like me, You're just going crazy in your head. You don't really say anything to anybody, unless it's your, your significant other, your kids who you're driving crazy. But you're a coward. You're a coward in what people think of you. And that's the way I was. So I found in a lot of my, you know, I had a lot of step nines to make. And I had some tears to shed. But it's the it's the living amends that, that really... That was the willingness with action that I needed in that. It wasn't enough, particularly with my wife. It wasn't enough to say I'm sorry because I can't say I'm sorry over and over again. I had to shut my mouth, let the steps be the guide, and do what I say I'm going to do every single day. And then steps 10, 11, and 12, we learn about doing a step 10. Doing it, and I do it the big book way, they call it. Not because I think it's the best. But it's just my opinion is, they wrote this for us. I always do better when I'm doing what I'm told. So I'm not going to let my ego in at all. I'm not going to change it, modify it. I'm not adding words to it. I'm not taking words away from it. I'm just doing it that way. And if you don't do it that way, I am perfectly fine with that. But that's just the way I do it. Step 11 is all about perfecting that relationship. And it requires discipline. I remember when I, I couldn't spend more than two minutes in silence. It was just miserable. And now I enjoy it. And then step 12, giving it to others. And I love doing that. I'm in sales, so that's kind of my thing. I love to talk to people on the phone. I could talk for hours and hours. When I first started and I had finally some recovery through the working of these steps, I swear I was working with like six to eight people at a time. I was literally spending five and six hours a day. I could do that because I traveled a lot with my job. But I meant I went over that book. I, it must be two, three hundred times. There's not another book on this earth that I know better than this OA big book, just because I've taken it, th- taken people through it so many times. And so I, I really blew through all of the steps because I just don't have enough time. And it takes several weeks or a little bit longer to go through it with a sponsee. But I think the importance is to look at that book as a textbook, to understand it was created for a reason. And what was that reason? Well, the reason was it's trying to help me develop a relationship with God, and then God can come in and solve my eating problem. And that's just what happened for me. Now, I'm a person that calls my sponsor every single day, and I'm going to share you, share with you the questions that he asks of me every single day because I think it's important. My sponsor gives me a few minutes to talk about the day, 
And then he wants to know, and this is every single day, without exception, what am I doing to help the sick and suffering today? Am I sponsoring how many? Am I going to meetings when and how many? He goes to two meetings a day, every day except one. What am I doing today to recognize that my disease is getting stronger? It's progressive. How am I how am I counteracting that by the working of my program in the day? Sometimes that means I gotta do more work. I ask myself, well, how can I do more work? But sometimes it means I gotta change things up. I was speaking with a sponsee the other day. He felt disconnected. He hadn't relapsed, but he just felt disconnected. You know how we do. You know, we want to do something new. We want to do something over again. Well, if you've not relapsed, I'm not sure that you, you know, maybe working the steps over, maybe there's something else. So let's talk about what you are doing. Well, you know how it is when the steps aren't working, what is that? It's not because they don't work. It's because we're not working them. So I say, well, first thing we need to do is just let's make sure we reaffirm that we're going to work the steps. Let's talk about some things we can do. You know, maybe we do need to work the steps through again. I don't know. And as we discussed it, we came up with what we're going to do. Could be right, could be wrong. But I know what I did do. While he was talking, I'm praying, God, help me help this person. Help me do the best I can for him. Help me share my strength, hope, and experience not tell him what to do, because that's what I want to do. I want to be the boss. I want to be the dad. I want to be the husband. I want to be the last man standing. you got to do what I say you do. That's who I want to be. I can't do that. I have to say, God brought me this person into my life. How can I help them? What, what in my strength, hope, and experience can I use to help this person? And I think that's the key of program. That was the key for me, allowing God into that degree. So my sponsor every day asked me, you know, what am I doing for myself? What am I doing for others? How am I uh, combating the progressiveness of this disease? How am I working it today, every single day? Now, my sponsor, he's lost a whole lot more weight than I was. He went a long lot further, not to compare, but he has to work a strong he, – he goes – you never know it. Goes to two meetings a day, the whole kit and caboodle, because he has to. And a lot of that rubbed off on me. I don't have to work that strong of a program. Maybe I do. I just, I'm lucky, whatever. But what I do know and what I do carry in my heart and what I do carry to as many people as I can talk to is this program is about allowing God in perfecting that relationship with the God of my understanding, working on that through what? Through service and self-sacrifice. And that can be the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life because that requires me to be loving and kind, tolerant of others, keeping my big mouth shut when I want nothing other than to tell everybody how wrong they are and how right I am. And I didn't think I was going to go an hour, but I have. So I think that I will stop, and uh, I appreciate everybody giving me this chance to speak. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Chuck. What a beautiful hour it was. Thank you for sharing your inspiring and powerful story of transformation as a result of these 12 steps. We appreciate it greatly. Share ID for Chuck's presentation, 18,413. That's 18413. Chuck's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment with Chuck. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name, and questions only. Who would like to pose a question? Um, hi, this is Anna A. Anna A. Who came in before that, please? Suzanne. Camille. Suzanne. Anyone else? Camille G. Camille. Star one to unmute. Liz A. Liz A. Barbara D. Barbara D. Okay, let's get started with this group. I have Suzanne, Anna A, I believe, Camille G, Liz A, and Barbara D. Everybody, please mute except for Suzanne. Suzanne, star one to unmute to pose your question. Sorry. <laughs> I'm talking to myself. Um, yeah, um, good morning, everyone. And I just want to say that was. <clears throat> such a wonderful, powerful story. I've been around these rooms for many, many years. I've never left, and I don't think I heard one quite like that. I really appreciated hearing that. Um, the question I have, and I don't know that I ever got an answer to this, is when you are sponsoring someone, um, how long, if the person is not doing well, it's my understanding that the big book says, if you know, if you can't help another a person, can't help that person, and you move on to the next. So the question for me is, if someone's not doing well, how long do you continue to be their sponsor? Well, that was a good question. Um, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that question. I will only drop a sponsee if I do not feel I could be of service to them. Because I know what it is to struggle. Sometimes the right answer is to work with that person some time because they're, you're basically asking them to give up the only thing they've ever known for comfort. And that's the gosh, that is so hard. But the other part of that is you don't want to make things easy for, or you don't want to get in the way of it being hard for them. You don't want to enable that person. That's the worst thing you can do. So that's what I tell a sponsee very early on. I'm only going to drop them if I feel like I can't help them. So that requires some prayer and meditation. I don't have a rule of number of relapses or anything like that. 
but if I find that a, a sponsor, sponsee, uh, that I just can't help them, they just don't seem to be getting it. They may need to hear another voice. They may need to, may need to change. Um, and I'm just frank with them. You know, I'm frank with them. We talk about it. And, uh, and it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm nobody special. I'm nobody, you know, I, I don't want to think of myself as a celebrity or think that I can save anybody. That's the last thing I need to think. So I think prayer meditation is a good idea. And just having an open and honest discussion with that person. But I only make the decision when I feel like I can no longer help this person. So that's what I do. Thank you, Suzanne, for your question. Anna A., your turn. Thank you. Thank you for your service. I'm Anna A. from Michigan. I want to ask Chuck, how does he help his sponsors? to build a relationship with their higher power when they come from a big disappointment from religion? Thank you. Well, that was a, that was a really good question. I think a lot of us are disappointed by religion, and rightfully so, with some of the stories that I've heard. And there are some things in my life that, that, that religion was a big disappointment in a lot of ways. Um. The first thing I do is I pray with a sponsee. When we begin the working the big book, we pray. And I get them in the habit of praying because I know it's uncomfortable. It's getting out of themselves. It makes you feel cringy and awkward. And I'm, I, I don't force them, but I ask them to pray out loud sometimes. And I let them know that's what we're here for. And the other thing I do, and I'm hearing a little bit of a disturbance, but the other thing I do is let them know that it's okay to change their conception of God. You know, religion is man-made. Spirituality is between us and that spiritual being, whatever's out there. And what we've done is we've allowed man to come in and mess up, and we have falsely placed that at the feet of our higher power. Now, it's true that nothing happens in this world outside of our higher power's will. But we were created with a free will. We were created with uh, the ability to make choices. And let me tell you something. <laughs> the human race does not always make the best choices in this world. And that's just the way of it. But one of the things that I have to do is I have to share my strength, experience, and hope and let the other person know that these things are okay. It's okay to choose your own conception of God. I firmly believe that God upstairs smiles to me when I say that. Think of it this way. If I'm talking and I'm a Christian man, well, that might be an outside issue. If I'm talking and I'm, a, I'm from one religion and I'm talking to a, uh, uh, another person who is as strong in their religion as I am in mine, and I'm trying to tell them what, that, what I think is right, and they're trying to tell me what they think is right, we're neither one of us going to get anywhere. It ain't going to happen. You're just going to make somebody mad. And that's not what God wants out of us. Instead, my job is to be kind and loving. That means I listen to someone. That means I share what my strength, hope, and experience is. I can share that. I can, I can share the disappointments I've had with God. And I can share 
the strength and the hope and the forgiveness and the, the beautiful things God has done for me. And then let that other person make their own mind up. And either way, it's fine. It's not my business because the last thing I need to do is to play God. And anybody, time I'm telling somebody else what they should do, anytime I'm trying to think about what some, what's going on in somebody else's mind, anytime I'm trying to, to dictate what's right and wrong for someone else, there's a little bit of me playing God in that, and that's not my job on this world. So I hope that answers your question. That's the best answer I got. Thank you, Anna and A. Camille G. Star one to unmute. Camille G. Leah, can you hear me? I hear you. Okay, thank you so much. I'm sorry. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your spirit. And um, this is a food question. So my question to you is, um, what's your food plan? And how has it mor- how, how has it morphed or not? Well, my, my that's a pretty funny question. My food plan is an absolute miracle. If I told the Chuck five years ago what my food plan was, I wouldn't even have stepped foot in my first OA meeting. Absolutely would not have done it. Uh, it was an absolute miracle for me to stop snacking. That was my first plan of eating. Simply that. And uh, it, that went on for about a year or two, I think. And then I stopped eating sugar. Anything with sugar in it, I didn't eat. But I was still eating everything else. And I was eating sugar substitutes and all of that. And then. The next time it changed, that's when I stopped eating any flour, or not just flour, but any anything smaller than a piece of corn or something. I won't eat anything that's ground up, any processed stuff. I basically eat fruits, vegetables, nuts, uh, dairy, and meat. That's it. I don't eat stuff coming out of a bag. I don't eat stuff coming out of a box. Uh, I don't eat sugar substitutes. I think it's very important to understand that it didn't seem like my body could tell the difference between sugar and a sugar substitute. It still had that same effect for me, so I had to give it up. And so that's what my my diet, that's what my plan of eating, I always tell everybody don't use diet. Every time I talk about it, that word comes out of my mouth. But my plan of eating now is I eat nothing with sugar. I eat nothing with flour of any kind. Uh, I eat no artificial sweeteners. Uh, I have three meals a day. They are weighed and measured, so my proportions aren't uh, aren't out of this world. And that's my plan of eating. And it took it took what three years to get that, maybe two and a half. Thank you, Camille, for your question. Liz A, your turn. Hi, this is Liz A from Michigan. I'm hearing some interference. I don't know what it is. Um, so I actually felt emotional just just listening to you. I resonated with your share, so thank you. Um, 
I, you mentioned four questions that your sponsor asked if we're doing each day. Could you please, I think I got a couple of them, but could you please go over those quickly? Thank you. That was a good question. What am I doing today to help myself in program? How am I working that program? How am I reaching out? How am I helping? fact that my disease is progressive it's always getting worse and that sometimes means doing more work that means if I'm sponsoring two people maybe I need three if I'm sponsoring three people maybe I need four you know maybe I need to go to another meeting than I normally go to or that may mean I need to go to different meetings Maybe I need to read uh, part of the big book or another OA book that I haven't read in a while. There's a lot of valuable information in all of the OA books. They were all put here for us so that they could, so God could speak to us through them. So I, you know, sometimes that might be the the thing I need to do. And those are the questions. I don't remember thinking there's four, but those that's what he asked me, what I just told you. Thank you, Liz A. Barbara D, your turn. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you for your service. I'm Barbara D, a compulsive overeater from New York. And my question is, um, what things do you do on a daily basis to keep your program alive? And do you have a daily spiritual practice? Well, I work the steps. I live in 10, 11, and 12. And so what that means for me is in the morning when I get up, um, I listen to a, a, a person reading upon awakening for me, and then I do what it says. You know, a part of it says to, to look at your spiritual book, and I have, a, I have two podcasts that are daily uh, uh, devotionals. I don't want to get into religion. I listen to those two. Uh, one is a podcast on the internet, and one is a phone that I, a number that I dial. Uh, I, I uh, read uh, Vision uh, Voices of Recovery, and I, li- I read uh, for today. There's a there's a daily reader there that I that I do, and then I the most important thing I do is I give myself some time to pray. And just be still and quiet and listen. I listen. You know, and it took me a long time for that chatter to stop. You know, I I, I just, I couldn't concentrate. And it took a lot of time for that to happen. Then I I do what, you know, the big book says. I I try to, to the best of my ability, have God's will, thy will be done, not mine, throughout the day. And then, you know, when I get busy at work or with a problem and I get centered again, I kind of readjust. I say, God, just let me do your will. Let me try to keep my will out of it. Get out of the driver's seat, get in the passenger seat, and let God start driving again. Uh, I typically help as many people as will come across my path. Uh, Used to be I went to a meeting every day, 
But in the last four months, my work schedule changed, and it's not allowing me to do that. But I'm happy to say here in a couple of weeks I'll be able to do that again, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I'm helping people every day, um, and that just means I'm sponsoring. I'm not telling people what to do. I'm simply sharing my strength, hope, and experience. If I'm asked to, to do a meeting, I, I, if I, unless I have a conflict, I do it. And at the end of the day, you know, we have that beautiful Step 10 recap in Step 11 where we have our safety net and we can see how our day went. And then I can ask for God's forgiveness and protection, you know, and good night, God. I love good morning, God. My daily devotional is the first thing I hear. Good morning, God. Good night, God, at the end of the day. Maybe I do some reading after that, I, you know. And maybe it's not OA, but that's just the way I am. But I begin and end my day in prayer and meditation, and I try to do the best I can do throughout the day, living what I've said I'd live, using the, the tools, or excuse me, using the steps as the tools to my recovery. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara D. Who else has a question for Chuck? Press star one to unmute. I need your name, including the first Thank letter. Melissa G. Melissa G. I didn't catch the first name. Vivian A. Susan P. From Georgia. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else? Ruvane H. Ruvane H. Anyone else? Did you get me, Leanne, Vivian M.? Exactly. Yes, I did. Thanks. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This is Bob S. And Bob S. Thank you, Bob. Okay, we've got Susan P., Vivian M., Melissa G., Ruvain H., and Bob S. Let's begin with Susan P., please. Can they be heard? Yes. Um, you mentioned, um, thank you, Chuck, for a wonderful, wonderful presentation. It's nice that you're a fellow Georgian. My question is, uh, you mentioned journaling. Do you have a specific journaling practice? I didn't come on here to get put on the spot. And if my former sponsor was listening, she's going to tell you that I don't like journaling. So when I journal, and that's one of the things that I can work on, I have been told, and this is the way I do it, to just begin writing. And sometimes it takes two to three pages for me to get to the what it is that I'm that's bothering me. But I will I'm going to preface that by saying I don't have a lot of good experience with journaling. It's one of those things that I've yet to have God conquer in my life. But that that's what I've heard. Just start writing, maybe begin with, you know, good morning, God, or dear God. Sometimes I mean to put some curse words in it because I'm upset about something. I've heard that. I've, I've actually done that. Um, but just to keep writing and let it flow naturally. So that's, I'm going to cut that one short because I really don't have, I'm, I'm just, tell you all, I'm, journaling is not my strong suit. Thank you, Susan, for your question. Vivian M., your turn. 
Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck, so much. That was just amazing. I was so happy I dialed in this morning. I was going to go to the the other birthday party, and I thought, no, something is just telling me, call in, and oh, my goodness, you're exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you so much. Um, My question is, um, uh, periodically, I do go through the steps again with my sponsor. And the last time I did it, it was a a very quick way using podcasts. I have generally done it, well, any number of ways over the years. Is there any one specific way that you do it? And if there are more than one way, how do you determine which way to do it with specific sponsees? Or or just how do you do that? Do you have a different method? Do you do the same thing all the time in terms of going through the steps? Do you use the same method? I guess that's my question. No, I do have a number of methods that, and it and it just it depends on the, the situation. And uh, so, like, let's say if I've got somebody that's new that's never read the big book before that knows absolutely nothing about it, well, that might be a good time to actually sit down and read the big book with a sponsee. And what I'll do there is I'll read a couple paragraphs, and then they'll read a couple paragraphs. And then we'll stop and we'll talk about what we've just read a little bit. Now, that takes a little bit of doing. Um, so what I mainly do, my, my main uh, way of doing it is by going through each chapter generally once a day. So we're going through the chapter very quickly, stopping for the step four and five, letting them do their step six and seven. Um, working on them with step eight, nine, and trying to get them into step 10 very quickly. And the reason I do it very quickly is not to rush, but to understand that their disease is still active. Till we get into step nine and the promises start occurring, they may not have the willpower they need to stay out of the food. So I want to try to get them to where God is starting to help them very quickly. Now, that might not be the way everybody does it, and that's fine. So we'll use a series of podcasts for that. Uh, one of the series is on Vision for You, and maybe offline, if you'd like to call me, I can tell you what that is. Um, but there's another, uh, there's there's a YouTube series that I use. It's some, it's some famous speakers that I like, and sometimes I'll use them as a guide. So it really just depends on the person, and sometimes it depends on me. Maybe maybe I'm feeling like I haven't worked with somebody in a in a few weeks, and I'm getting a little rusty, or a month. So I may just want to purposely read the big book through with them. That's that's very important. And sometimes it's happened to where I have that same feeling, but instead of reading the big book through, I'll listen to the podcast on the same day they are that I have them that I have them signed to. So once again, it's up to the situation. And then I think, and the most important thing of all, there's really no right or wrong answer. It's just what, you know, the, the right answer is, well, you let God help you decide. And, and I think that's so important. So thank you for the question. Thank you, Vivian M. Melissa G., your turn, star one to unmute. Hi, um, this is Melissa G. from Michigan. Um, thank you for your share, Chuck. I appreciate you. Um, I was wondering if you could just, kind of talk about a little bit more in depth about uh, reforming your conception of God and kind of where you even started with that process. Thank you. Well, um, 
my, I remember talking, I remember going through the big book and I remember my sponsor telling me, uh, you need to change your conception of God. And I remember getting really, really scared. And I remember telling her about what I thought God was to me. And I, at the time, I had been working with her for about a year, and I was having some difficulties with a family member. And she brought to my attention that my conception of God was wrapped up in what I thought my dad thought of me. I, I dealt with a lot of emotional abuse. My dad loves me. Well, now I've done told her who it was. My dad loves me, We, you know, but he is a very strict person, and I didn't get what I needed from him, basically. And it hurts. And so it was interesting for that to be brought up, that my conception of God wasn't so much what I thought about God, but it was wrapped up more in the, the, the insecurities and the faults that I felt like my dad saw in me, and that's what I thought God saw in me too. And then to answer your questions, that's what the steps are all about. So the answer is to work through the steps. Let the steps help you. Find that power and perfect and enlarge that relationship. Another thing I've been asked to do is what we call a job description of God and to learn that it's okay to, to change that conception. At the top of the paper, you know, we can put a piece of paper down and at the top of it, we can write down all the things we want from God. And some of the interesting things that came up that I share with is I need a God that when I'm at my weakest, that if I can just crawl or walk to God, God will come running at me. That's such a powerful statement. God's going to drop everything in this earth and all the stuff going on in the universe just to help me, even if it's something minor as my food, what I'm going to put in my mouth. And God will do that for me. Uh God, I don't want a God that's condescending or that holds grudges or, you know, God made me who I am and made me with the capability of doing some of the stuff I've done and then going to send me off somewhere because I've done what God made me to do. I need a God that loves me just as I am, that even though I've done all these crappy things in this world, that wants to be inside of me, living within me. Right there with me through no matter what. Not sitting on the clouds waiting for a thunderbolt to shoot down at me when I've made a mistake. Because that's what I thought. So that's a, that's a part of God that I had to learn. And that's what I share when I ask people to do that job description. And at the bottom of the page, I don't know if I brought it up, but all the things I don't want out of God. I don't want God to, to judge me or condemn me or or not be there for me, or not be strong enough for me. So those are some of the things you can do. But the one thing I want to remember is, let's remember that that's what these steps are here for. So many times what will happen is we don't feel a certain way, or things don't mean something to us. We're trying to look for another solution, or another way of working things, or another this, something different. When really, it's just a matter that we haven't or I have not applied the steps as directed in my life. There's where the problem originated, not because the steps didn't work. 
And that's the purpose of these steps, to help us with that relationship with God so that God can come and, and, and we can allow him to solve the problem, not just food, but all the problems that we have. So I hope that answers your question. And I, I think maybe there isn't a right or wrong answer there either. Thank you, Melissa G. Ruvain H., your turn to pose a question. Yeah, thanks, everyone, for your service. And thank you. I came in late, so um, this might have been answered, uh, Chuck, um, earlier. When you talked about the development of your food plan, um, A, um, how did you come up and or if and how did you come up with um, amounts per your three meals? Um, um, do you um, uh, daily call into your sponsor and give him or her what you're going to eat the following day uh, and show that you've done that commitment? Um, and uh, um, I don't know if you can answer it, this question. Um, in terms of uh, God relating, um, do you feel that God, that you this that whatever you're doing now has been just gifted to you by God and then you did it? Or do you see you're really actively doing something to get God to gift it to you? Thank you. Very good set of questions. I'm going to try to ask them all. Um, one, I don't talk to my sponsor about food other than that one time. There was one time that I complained about relapsing that he asked me. And I really don't talk to food, talk about food to my sponsees, and there's a reason for that. That is, the food is not the problem. It never was. So the more time I spend talking about God and less time I'm talking about food, the better off I seem to be. Now, that doesn't mean I'm so stoic that I won't try to help a sponsor any way that I can. And if they need to talk about food, I will help them. But the other thing that I didn't mention was my plan came from a doctor. I went to the doctor. And I asked them, what do I need to be eating? Then I brought that plan back, and there was some stuff on there that I can't eat because I have an allergy, and the doctor don't understand about an allergy. At least mine didn't. So I simply had to make substitutions and eliminations. But the bottom line is, somebody needs to tell me what I'm eating. I don't need to go figuring it out in myself because as soon as I start trying to figure out what I'm going to eat, there's where the chatter begins. There's where the disease is trying to sneak in there, whereas I'm following a, a, plan, a plan of eating that says no snacking, three meals at 301, no snacking, no this, no that, uh, this amount that's come from a, a nutritionist or a doctor or the Dignity of Choice pamphlet can also be used. That's when I'm doing the best. Now, as far as how to get that done, I'm going to bring up something I learned in one of the other OA books, and I'll be very brief. It is an OA book. It's the Basket Week book, Appendix C of the Basket Week book. Another doctor talks about the, de the difference between surrender and submission, and it makes a lot of sense to me. It says surrender is an unconscious event. 
I really don't control that. Now, that may seem alarming to you, and I understand. But they say, submission is something I can control. I can submit to this. And that would explain, like that instance that I discussed earlier, where I did all of this work, I did all of this stuff trying to keep out of the food, but yet I went home and ate again. I think God really does control that surrender. When we surrender, we're really just submitting to God's will. And when we do that enough, God does all the rearranging in our minds and whatever, that surrender just happens. That's why you hear so many people talking about, like for me, I haven't had a food thought in so long, it's scary. I know I'm one bite away from a relapse, a 10-year relapse. But I've just gone through the holidays. I've got four kids. we got stuff all over that I don't eat. I don't have any thought of it at all. I, and it's a miracle, absolute miracle. The most favorite things on this earth that I love can be arranged around me. I've got to go buy it. I've got to go package it. I've got to get it on my fingers and smell it. I've got to do all this stuff with it to be a good dad and make sure that they have a good holiday, my children. But I don't have to put that in my mouth. I can go wash my hands. That's an absolute miracle. And I think that happened because I submitted not only to what God wanted, but to what my sponsors told me, to what the big book told me. I did what I was told rather than what I wanted to do enough that God came in and allowed the surrender to occur. That's the best way I can explain that. Thank you. Your phone number? Uh, and we'll get to that. Thank you, Ruvain H. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. That brings us to the top of the hour. And, of course, thank you so much, Chuck, for your powerful story of transformation. Truly compelling and uh, inspirational this morning. Thank you very, very much. Share ID for Chuck's presentation, 18,413. That's 18413. We are going to close right now from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is great, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.